We're up to chapter 3, Mishnah 7, Rabbi Chalafta, Ben Dosa, Ishvar Hananya Omer, Rabbi Chalafta, the son of Dosa, the man of Kfar Hananya says, and he's going to list five different numbers of people studying Torah together and the significance of that. Asara Shiyoshim Vosim Torah, if there's 10 people who sit together and engage in Torah study, Shechina Shribeneim, the divine presence rests among them. Shinemar, as it says in the verse, Elohim Nitzav Badas El. God stands in the divine assembly. When there's 10 people, it's a divine assembly. We have a minion, and God is present in that congregation. Umenayin Afilu Chamisha. And how do we know that even if there's only five people studying Torah, that the Almighty is present? Shinemar Va'agudaso Al Eretz Yesada. His bundle. Upon earth, he has established. And how do we know that even if there's three people studying Torah, that God is amongst them? In the midst of judges, he shall judge. And how do we know even two? Then two people who feared God spoke to each other, and God listened and heard. And how do we know? That even if there's only one person studying, that God is with him, quotes the verse in Exodus, in every place where I inspire mention of my name, I will come to you and bless you. So this seems like a, somewhat of a redundant Mishnah. All you could have said is that there's the divine presence whenever people are studying Torah, and that would seemingly have accomplished the same goal. But we're told specifically, no, when there's 10 people and we source it from one verse, and then when there's five people studying together, we source it from a second verse, and three, and two, and one, etc. So it's a very interesting idea in general, and the idea in general that God is present when people are studying Torah is a very fascinating idea, that we're here in terra firma, and we're humans, and we're ostensibly very distant from God, but we could kind of evoke Him to come join us when we study His Torah which is a very interesting idea in general. And specifically, we're told it depends how many people are there. If there's 10 people, well, then there's maybe one level of divine presence. And if there's five, there's a second level. And if there's three and two and one, there is gradients, so to speak, of levels of presence of God. It's a very interesting idea. It doesn't go and say, well, what if there's 25 or 25,000. It seems like once you tap out a 10, that's it. That's the maximum. And we have that idea with minion. 10 people, you have a minion. 20 people, it's the same minion. 200 million people, it's also the same minion. And the idea, I think it, it does link to a lot of general other principles that the idea of 10 is completion. Like we have the 10 commandments, 10 utterances of God creates the world, the 10 spherot, of course. That's the blueprint of the entire world according to the Kabbalah. We have uh, the 10 plagues of Egypt, uh, a lot of these corresponding principles in Jewish theology and Jewish philosophy of, of 10 crea- uh, creating a certain completion. I would argue that that too is achieved with a minion of 10 and or, or with a group of 10 people studying. Once you have 10, that's it, you're complete. You can't out-complete something which is already complete. So to try to figure out what's going on over here, uh, many of the commentators point us to a teaching in the Talmud, the Book of Brachos, on page 6a. And it's a very, it sounds, sounds like a very similar teaching. Uh, it has the same levels, or at least a few of these same levels. 
And it applies these principles not only to Torah study, but also to other things. So the Talmud says, again, this is Brachos, page 6a, how do we know if there's 10 people who are praying that God's presence is among them? And it quotes the same verse, God stands in the divine assembly. And then it goes on to say, what if there's three people and they're engaging in judgment? There's a court comprised of three people. And they're hearing a Torah court case. There's litigants, and they're debating a halakhic matter. How do you know that God is with them? And it quotes the same verse that our Mishnah quotes. In the midst of judges, he shall judge. When there's human judges, God, the divine judge, is present too. And how do we know that even if there's two people who are studying Torah, continues the Talmud, that that the divine presence of God is with them? And it says, quotes the same verse that we have, that there's two people who are talking and studying and God listens. And it continues, how do we know that if there's one person studying Torah, that God is with them? And quotes it again, the same verse that our Mishnah quotes. So it seems like it's, it's a very similar structure. Uh, however, there are differences. A, that... It omits five. Our Mishnah, there's ten people studying Torah, there's five people studying Torah, there's three people studying Torah, there's two people studying Torah, there's one person studying Torah. That's the first difference. There it's only ten, three, two, and one. A. B, there it applies it to not just Torah study, it applies it to prayer. It applies it to people sitting in, in, in judgment, in court. So let's go back to this Talmud and Brachos. The Talmud asks the obvious questions. If we can prove from the verse that when one person studies Torah, well, God's with him, why do you need to tell me when there's two people studying Torah, God's with them as well? Isn't it obvious? If God is with one person, surely where there's more people studying Torah, there's a greater atmosphere of Torah, then God would be present there too. And the Talmud gives a shocking answer. Again, the verse that the Talmud uses is two people speak to each other, God listens, and then the verse continues, and God writes it down in a book, in a ledger. And the Talmud says, the difference with, between one person studying Torah on their own versus two people studying together is that, yes, God is present in both instances, However, when there's two people studying Torah, there's a dialogue. Where does that dialogue get recorded? It gets recorded into some divine book, some divine ledger. It's like added to the collected ledger of the Jewish people. So maybe one way to look at this is, you know, we talked, we, read, we just finished Genesis, and we read the stories of, of Jacob and his brother and his children, his father-in-law and Abraham And those stories, of course, ended up in the Torah. They were recorded for posterity in the collective corpus of the Jewish people. At the time, they were people, and there were interactions, and there were relationships, and there were struggles. But at the time, they were just regular humans. Of course, they're very special humans, but they were humans. Their actions get added to the collected ledger to the degree that they end up in the Torah. In fact, the Talmud tells us that Reuben, he was the first one to try to save Joseph. When the brothers wanted to kill Joseph, he says, well, let's not kill him, let's throw him into this pit. 
The Talmud says something very startling. It says, had Ruve known that his decision at that time would be recorded for posterity into the book, into the Torah, he would have taken Joseph and put him on his shoulders and brought him back to his father. Meaning that Reuven thought, listen, this is, this is an important instance. Like this, this is an important episode in our lives. The brothers want to kill Joseph and Jacob, and we're a very special family, and this is really terrible, and how are you going to kill your brother? Let's throw him into the pit instead. In his head, he was like, the stakes are really high. But he didn't realize how high the stakes really were. It wasn't just an episode, a very important episode in this family's history. It was an episode that's recorded for posterity, and billions of people are going to read about it, and it's going to be enshrined in the Torah forever. Had he realized the states of what he was really doing, then he would have taken even more drastic action. Here we're told that there is some sort of collected ledger of the history of mankind or the history of the Jewish people in heaven. And when two people stand towards together, not only is God there and present, but God actually says, okay, this discussion is going to be added to that collected corpus. My, uh, my children tell me that whenever someone does a mitzvah, they add a brick onto the temple. Of course, we know Ever since the second temple was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago, we're trying to build the third temple. But how do you build a temple? It's a very complicated thing. Not only is it architecturally challenging, it's geopolitically challenging, and it's religiously challenging. And we've always believed that you know, there's, there's definitely going to be a spiritual component, a spiritual merit that's going to lead to the temple being rebuilt. So my children tell me, he says, every time you do a mitzvah, you're adding a brick. Maybe we need, I don't know, 10 billion bricks. It's a big edifice after all. Every mitzvah you do, you're adding a brick. And God forbid if someone does a sin, well, then maybe knocking down a brick or maybe knocking down a whole wall, you got to start from scratch. I don't know where this is sourced in the Talmud, but I think the point is it's a very deep point. It's that it's a certain amplification of our life. Our decisions that we make today, they determine the big picture of all of human history and human destiny and the destiny of our nation. Every mitzvah, we're adding the actual brick to the temple. And God forbid we do a sin. If it's a terrible sin, maybe we knocked down a whole wall. Who knows? And again, I don't know if that's actually 100% accurate. I haven't seen the sources, but I think the idea is the same idea here. Two people studying Torah, God's with him. Great. God writes it down. One person studying Torah, unbelievable. But you know what? It doesn't get recorded for posterity in the heavenly ledger. It's great, but it's not as great as when two people studying Torah together. Continues the Talmud. And after that, we know that two people studying Torah, it's so important, it's so amazing. Why do we need to be told about three people? If two people, after all, if they study Torah, God's with them. Certainly, when three people study Torah, God's with them as well. Why, what added information we told by listing number three as well? And the Talmud says, well, three people, when they study Torah, that's in the format of a court. We know in, in Jewish uh, jurisprudence, there's three different types of courts. There's a court comprised of three justices, a court comprised of 23 judges, justices, and a court comprised of 71. And that's, of course, the Sanhedrin. The great Sanhedrin is only one of them in Jerusalem. But you have three people. That's enough. Uh, enough of an assembly to create a court, the smallest court, but a court nonetheless. 
Says the Talmud, I would perhaps think that when three people are coming to mediate or to adjudicate a Torah law, that's not considered Torah study. That's considered justice, or that's considered law, or that's considered something else. Here we're told that three people getting together is also considered Torah as well. And finally concludes the Talmud, well, if three people studying Torah evokes God, why do we need to be told about ten people? Says the Talmud that when there's ten people, God doesn't wait for them to get there. God arrives before them. The presence of God is present before they get together. Why? At 9 o'clock or 9.30, there's going to be a convention of 10 people studying Torah? God will be there ahead of time. He'll be waiting for them, not vice versa. That's the conclusion of the Talmud. I think for our Mishnah's sake, definitely there's a lot of overlap with this Talmud, but I think that there's uh, two general points that are worthy of inquiry. A, the general notion that when we study Torah, we are summoning God to join us, A. And B, that there's this gradation, so to speak, of the degree of divine presence, like the Talmud says, that if, if one person studies, it's great. Two people study, well, it's written down in a book. Ten people there, well, God will be there even earlier. So I want to I maybe suggest some, some thoughts to how to make this idea a little bit more understandable. There is um, a tradition that we have uh, from Rabbi Israel Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement. He used to say, uh, if you read the Talmud, the Talmud is obsessed about attribution. It always is going to attribute a statement in the name of the person who said that statement. So sometimes you'll have like two or three lines. This rabbi, the son of this rabbi, the son of that rabbi said in the name of this rabbi who said it from that rabbi. And alternatively, we hear that, no, it was actually this rabbi who said it from that rabbi who said it from that rabbi. And it's like, okay, we got it. Teach me the, give me the meat. Don't give me the whole preamble. That's what we may think. But that's the policy of the Talmud. It's always going to attribute the teaching as best as it could to the origin of that, of, of that, of that teaching. But sometimes it says, Omar Mar, which means the master said, and it's kind of odd, like we're, we're so fastidious about keeping track of who said what and when did they say it and how did they say it and what were the exact words. And somehow you have all these other instances where it says, Omar Mar, the master said it. And we have no idea who this person is. So Rabbi Ezra says, every time it says Omar Mar, it's reminding you that these words, this Torah is really originated by the master of the world. When it says Omar Mar, it's not a reference to some unnamed rabbi. It's a re- reminder, so to speak, that this is the words of the Almighty. Because we can get kind of so caught up in the finer points of the back-and-forth dialogue of the Talmud. Of course, anyone who opens up any page of the Talmud, you see that it's just insane. Like, just every page is back-and-forth, a question and answer. Someone told me recently that there's eight different kinds of words in the Talmud. It's either a statement, a proof, a rebuttal, a conclusion, a question trying to find information, an answer satisfying the question, or a question which is a contradiction or a resolution of that contradiction. And that's kind of like all smashed into one page, like back and forth and back and forth, you know. And like in one word, it'll say, uh, this is a, a question, this is an answer, right? You have to kind of, 
That's why it's so difficult to study because you have to kind of get the flow and it's not broken down. It's not like you don't have this elaboration like, okay, one word. Let me give you two or three paragraphs of what's going on. And you have to kind of keep track of the entire implications of every side. So you have a, you have a, a proof, a disproof, a proof, a disproof. And on each side is going to kind of connect those proof and disproofs, disproof, I guess, to all the implications of that particular stance. So the Talmud has all these intricacies and we're reminded every once in a while that this really goes all the way back to God. And we're, we're, we're trying to argue the Torah and the Word of God to understand what, what he wants from us. And therefore, the, the idea, maybe the idea that we're, we're being uh, shared here in the Mishnah, the general idea, uh, is that while we are discussing Torah in a way that makes sense to us, its roots are in the heaven. And when we study Torah, we're kind of bridging the gap between us and the spiritual realm. And here we see that, that this actually works, that when we study Torah, God, so to speak, from the heavens comes uh, to us. Now, with regards to the breakdown of 10, 5, 3, 2, and 1, uh, I saw uh, Rashi, for example, says that 5, the significance of the number 5, uh, some of the commentators, uh, they, they explain that, well, the word five is, yeah, five fingers, and that kind of has some sort of significance. Uh, the Maharal says, well, five is four. You have four, four, four directions, plus one that unites them. Uh, a lot of symbolism going on over here. Rashi says that five is the amount of people needed for a court case. Why? Because you need to have three judges and two litigants. And even the two litigants, what are they doing? They have a dispute, but ultimately they come to the court and they want to hear what the word of God is. So they too are partners in this pursuit of truth, in this pursuit of, of Torah. And another idea maybe that we see in the commentaries here to understand this, to understand this, this principle is that you know, people are different. Talmud tells us that just like people look different, just like people sound different, people's perspectives are different. Which is why if you go to a yeshiva, you see people arguing with each other. I don't get it. Why are they arguing? Do they have different texts? No, they have the same text but different brains. And the different brains approach things differently and therefore you have conflict. And the only way to resolve conflict is to scream at each other. Apparently. So, and that's a beautiful thing. That's not, that's not a bad thing. It's a certain diversity of, of thought, the diversity of perspective, and Torah is this great unifier where two people who have different perspectives come together and bond, so to speak, over Torah, and these two outlooks are, are going to contribute towards trying to understand what is true, what's not true. And obviously, the more perspectives you have, the more likely you are to get to down to the to the desire of God, so to speak, that's manifested in Torah. In fact, there's a very similar teaching in the Talmud of the book of Sota. It says the exact same words, Shechina Beinehem. It says that a husband and a wife, if they are meritorious, Shechina Beinehem, the divine presence of God is between them. It's a similar kind of idea, a man and a woman, husband and wife, different backgrounds, different perspectives. They're opposites, almost. And when they come together, that creates this idea of shechina between them. Now, the Talmud also says, but if they, they're not meritorious, then a fire will consume them. So that's the bad side. 
But here, similarly, you have two people that are studying Torah together. They're opposites or they're, they're, they're different because everyone's different. And then they come together and that creates, that brings down the Shekhinah. That, that, that ushers down the Shekhinah, the divine presence. And then you have three people. Well, there's even more perspectives. And five. And then ten. Well, ten, we're told that the, the, there's like ten roots of the soul. You have ten people. That creates a certain completion. That's all the perspectives that you could get. Once you add beyond that, it doesn't add to this particular point of unity of opposites. Regardless, I think the, the lesson for us is that when we study Torah, we're able to connect to God, and not only that, to bring God towards us. Of course, we do it as one person. It's amazing. But the more people we add, with two people studying Torah together, three, five, and even ten, that's going to raise the degree of divine presence that we're able to have, maybe even having God arriving here ahead of time to wait for us because he is so eager to partake, so to speak, in this pursuit of his Torah.